0: Artsville, Artsville, the happening town where art abounds. Artsville, Artsville, from Asheville town where art abounds. Artsville, Artsville, feeling mountain high and inspired in North Carolina. Oh, that's where you'll find us, amazing artists and designers. Greetings and salutations, my friends. Welcome to Artsville, the podcast that celebrates American contemporary arts and crafts from Asheville and beyond. I'm your host, Sourdough, and today we have a fantastic show because we're talking to the one and only Ken Katara. Ken is an incredible human being. His works on canvas paper and mylar are just so thought-provoking working in braille and with braille and polaroids and sculpture and site-specific installations that are contemporary and abstract and grid-based his work is rooted in sort of a southern environment aesthetic given his roots in louisiana with its beautiful rivers marshlands and lush vegetation i so enjoyed talking to ken he's so smart and so generous And such a lovely guy. And I think we really hit it off. I hope he liked me as much as I liked him. (laughs) But we're just so grateful to have him on the show. You might be wondering where my dear colleagues, Louise and Daryl, are today. They're on vacation and they deserve it a much deserved overdue vacation. I think they might be traveling in the beautiful land of Nova Scotia. So good for them. So without further ado, We'll get into this episode with Ken and want to shout out to Louise and Daryl first because I miss you guys. I miss you. Come back. So weird to be here without you. But safe travels. Come home safe. So without further ado, let's get into this fantastic conversation with the one and only Ken Katara. Ken Katara, welcome to Artsville.
1: Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. Well, I have to ask, Katara, right? What is the heritage there? What's your background? But well, Qatar is Polish, and the loose interpretation of it, it means curtain maker. So uh, my father comes from Texas, but I was, I was born in Lake Charles, Louisiana, so my mother's Cajun French. So probably a little bit of identity crisis issues at times, but so I still I probably connect more so with a French or Cajun French heritage and culture than I do with the Polish side of it.
0: I mean, not to mix cultural metaphors here, but you're like a gumbo. <laughs>
1: or, <you know. laughs> well, and, and I use that all the time, you know, because like I'm mixing up so many things. And of course, my mother, we cooked gumbo so many times. And that, that was a staple of ours in Lake Charles and along with etouffees and fried this and fried that. And so it truly is amazing uh, how many things you can kind of mix in and in that kind of Cajun culture, right, with African, Spanish and so on.
0: Yeah, you hail from one of my favorite parts of this country, Louisiana, and specifically, well, I happen to know this. My college roommate was from northern Louisiana, but I've spent a lot of time in southern Louisiana. I tell you, there really should be two states, northern Louisiana and southern Louisiana. They are very different.
1: True that. Sometimes people talk about California and that north and south California. And of course, we're talking about hundreds of, of miles there, whereas Louisiana shorter But the I-10, the I-20 quarter up north are completely different. And maybe one of those reasons, you know, I-10, of course, is a long, like a east-west belt of of Catholicism. And so that brings in a whole different culture, rich pageantry and so on. And it just makes it completely different. Mm. It's also a lot wetter down south than it is up north as well. Indeed, indeed. So,
0: you and I think you touched on this, forgive me, I just want to go back. Where exactly then did you grow up?
1: I was born in Lake Charles. Lake Charles, okay. Yes. And and of course, Lake Charles, unfortunately, has been the target of so many recent disasters between a couple of hurricanes and some tornadoes and and such. So, it's hadn't had a really good uh, shake of, of recent.
0: And so, we find you today, though, in Asheville, North Carolina, Correct. Correct. Fantastic. How long have you been in Asheville?
1: Gosh, over 25 years now. But I moved here from Dallas, Texas. Mm-hmm. Many people like myself looking for employment oftentimes go to Texas. And so I moved to Austin for a while. They went to Dallas. And as the story goes, one of my friends was over here doing textile design, and he had started out as a private contractor, and he had more work than he knew what to do with. And he kept like, Ken, you got to come out in here and help me. So I gave my notice out there in the prairies of of Texas, you know, stuck in traffic jams in the highways (laughs) of of Dallas and Dallas-Fort Worth and drove out to Bat Cave, North Carolina. That's where he was living. And it's like, what a contradiction, you know, of, of prairie to mountains and from traffic jams to having to wait for the chickens cross the road. (laughs)
0: yeah that's that well it's what you mentioned traffic and sometimes you know i i I might take dallas traffic jams over la traffic jams anytime but (laughs) but but you're stuck in traffic you're stuck in traffic it's a miserable experience nonetheless so yeah so asheville man i mean you're hanging your hat in asheville you're making your art in asheville you've been there 20 some years it sounds like Asheville has been really good to you. What do you love about working and practicing in
1: Asheville? I would say mostly for me, it's, it's almost a, more of a nurturing environment. I love being here in the mountains. I love the environment, great people, some great food, and it's different. It's, it's like when I was living in Louisiana, Texas, it's like I always longed to live in the mountains. Mm. When I finally had an opportunity to do so, I jumped at the chance. And of course, 25, 30 years ago, Asheville was slightly different. It Mm. isn't the hubbub that it is now. And it's a little more eccentric. And people are saying, you need to go there. It's eclectic. It has this really cool vibe to it, and and which it did. And still maintains some, but now it's just a great place to live. I got married here, had a son who just graduated from high school, turned 18.
0: Congratulations.
1: Thank you. Thank you. And uh, so it's really exciting. But the thing is, as far as the art world, girls always tell people when they ask me about my art in Asheville, I often tell people I'm in the export business because the majority of my art that I create here goes elsewhere. Yes.
0: Yes. Well, and and that's one of the things I've appreciated about Asheville and been learning is that it truly is a mecca of world-class contemporary arts and crafts, period. And so if you're an art lover and appreciate the aesthetic, Asheville is such an exciting place. And for you and your career, as you've developed and practiced, I mean, 20 some years ago, 23 years ago, paint a picture for me. I mean, where were you at in your career at that time?
1: <laughs> well, can we go through the history of art?
0: Uh, so I think I, Starting with representational? <laughs> that's where I was
1: when I was when I was still painting in Austin and, and Dallas. I was still, I'd say, a representational painter. But that began to slowly change. So many of my paintings back then evolved into abstract, but they were still landscape-like. If you know of the work of uh, Richard Diebenkorn, Mm. who would do these kind of architectural paintings that were not cubist, but they were almost as if looking at the landscape from a plane, Mm. And so I kind of took that on because that's where I was living within the kind of the prairies of, of Texas. Mm-hmm. And when I have moved here, it's suddenly out in Texas, everything stretches out so far and vast that you can see a thunderstorm coming four hours in advance. Mm-hmm. And in here, Asheville, you're confronted more by kind of a claustrophobic forest, you know, trees. It's beautiful. It's lush. And so it went completely different. That had a huge effect on me, changing the way I began to even approach my own practice. And that I so I began to look at the world differently and almost like begin to lift up my paintings towards me as opposed to kind of just wanting to stretch them out. Mm, mm. If that makes any sense,
0: well, it totally makes sense. But this journey, right? And it's so interesting that you sort of started out as a representational painter. And your journey and looking at your work now, boy, oh boy, I mean, we are talking about a 180 degree evolution in such a profound, magical, beautiful way. I'm no expert, but one of the reasons, but I am a lover. And one of the reasons I love your work is that it has such a, a or for me, my words, so much of it that I'm I'm looking at, it has a organic nature to it. And yet sometimes I feel like it has a almost like technological undertones, which is probably an odd thing to say. But when you think about things like biotech and artificial intelligence and things like metaverse, a lot of these patterns and a lot of these images that I'm seeing in your work just speak to me on that level.
1: Well, I think you're hitting on some of the key words that even the language that I use Mm. and oftentimes, you know, structure and systems. And so that began to, I don't know, kind of rise up as I was uh, constantly pushing my own work and the idea of technology, because I also have a background, I studied architecture and then I have a degree in graphic design mm-hmm. and I taught graphic design. So I'm well-versed in numerous software programs and moving from paper to computer. And I try to embrace that. And even sometimes if I don't embrace it, it's still going to affect my practice no matter what. And, and I like parts of that, but it's led me into so many different areas. And of course, some of the people I've met here, like I said, Asheville is this confluence of so many different characters and people with interest that you can't help but being influenced by many of them.
0: And that's what I love about Asheville too. It does have that, well, it's probably an overused analogy, but I sort of Think of it as sort of the Austin of North Carolina or something, you know, it's like it, it, it has that sort of liberal, eclectic, uh, hippie, uh, or can anyway, have that vibe. And, and I'm sure that's so inspiring for you as an artist. And having seen that evolution over 23 years, I know it's controversial as well, the growth. The...
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, it's always going to be the way. But you're right, though, because I always think of Asheville as a mini Austin. Mm. Because when I was in Austin in the early 90s, it wasn't as big as it is. And there was a very eclectic, colorful, textural place. You could always find all kinds of odd people that were very interesting with interesting backstories. Mm. And when I moved here, it was almost the same thing, but at a smaller scale. I still see that and I still think it happens. But I think both of them have grown exponentially within their own proportion, mimicking one another, but at, at a different scale. Where, yes, there's a very liberal center to Asheville and Austin, but you also have conservative people. And then sometimes you have these opposing forces. And those opposing forces, it's like I kind of live in that within my own work. I love opposing, taking Mm. two kind of seemingly uh, dichotomous issues and Mm -hmm. kind of ramming them together and seeing what actually comes about.
0: For sure, it's that tension, isn't it? That dynamic tension between uh, opposing forces oftentimes that we find magic.
1: Yes, yes. I used to run from that. Now I think that maybe too many times I kind of swim in it way too much. and maybe <laughs> pull, You know, I create my own vortex in a way. It's like, okay, how do I get out of this? And I was just having a, a meeting this morning with a colleague and talking about having to be very careful and selective, because sometimes you get so wrapped up in it, it's, it's like the internet. You get on the internet, and sometimes you get caught up in a rabbit hole. Yeah. And it's like three hours later, you're going, damn, where did my time go?
0: Right. Well, you know, listening to that, it sort of bumps into this other issue, Talk about rabbit holes, as a creative, as an artist, as an innovator, right, on some level, we're sort of cursed. It's a blessing and a curse, right? To be an idea person. <laughs> you know, yes. It's like, how do we, how do so we, true. how do we, how do we manage that <laughs> flow of inspiration and not get caught up in chasing rabbits and being able to focus on what the main project should be? How do you discipline yourself? How do you, well, how do you stay disciplined? How do you fight that urge? Cause I know personally as a creative person, I have a very hard time saying no,
1: You know, Scott, I wish you had, I wish you gave me the answer for that because, (laughs) yeah, I'm still searching for that at different times. But, but you know, some days are better than others. And some days you can walk into the studio and everything is clarified, it is clear. You can move through it, you know, it needs to be done. And there could be another day where I walk in and it's as if I'm looking at Russian, the language, Mm -hmm. and I don't understand it. So I have to, almost kind to trick myself into maneuvering through that, through that chaos. And then sometimes it's like, all right, I'm going to fixate on one item. And then I'm going to just work with this item for a while. And see if I can kind of singularly move through that step-by-step process. And that begins to then calm everything down. And some of those other voices that oftentimes are speaking to me, Sometimes projects will do that. If I have a particular project and a deadline, that's a good way, of course, of kind of holding in the uh, the barriers, the parameters of it all. But some days it's just like I feel like I'm just chasing my tail or even multiple tails and, and I'm not quite sure which one I'm going for. Oh,
0: good. I'm not alone. That makes me feel <laughs> a lot better.
1: <laughs> well, let's drill
0: down on that a little bit and take a particular case study. I mean, your work with Braille might be a really interesting kind of example of what you're talking about, about stumbling upon something maybe and realizing that there's potential there to go deeper and explore and then extrapolate in different Mm -hmm. ways. Tell us about your journey into what I'll call the Braille work and sort of where you're at now with that. We'd love to hear about that journey.
1: Well, that was definitely one of those case studies of a night of insomnia getting up at three or four in the morning, can't sleep, going on the internet and just, you know, kind of just following that rabbit hole wherever, hoping something would just actually cause me to go back to sleep. But I landed upon Braille and recognized the geometry of it, just those circles. And because a lot of my work is very grid-based and I recognize how the relationship of the grid with Braille. And then I'm looking and thinking like these signs and symbols, is not too far different from... Typography, which, of course, I'm well-versed in graphic design. Mm. This is another kind of written language, but for blind or visually impaired people. And so I had that kind of eureka moment. So instead of going back to sleep, I actually went into the studio mm. because I was like, like, holy, here's the circles. And suddenly I can populate these paintings with this language that now there might be a kind of a different recognition within the abstraction. As opposed to that kind of curvilinear pieces. And it also been connected to a lot of readings I love I love reading. And I think at that time I was going back and reading Thoreau's Walden. Mm. And I began to wonder it's like, you know, Thoreau always talked about seeing versus knowing. Mm. And that was something we also talk about in a classroom with like first beginning drawing. We always talk to our students, like, draw what you see and not what you know, because kind of the physiological versus the psychological is so completely different. And so suddenly it's just like I I landed in this platform, and this platform was almost unlimited. And so I began thinking about how to populate my pieces with this language. And then I began to think about my own sight. I didn't wear glasses until probably about 25 years ago from staring at a computer but of course it's all genetics as well and thinking about 2020 vision Mm. perfect vision versus imperfect vision and so on and it just leads me to so many different psychological areas that i mean we'd probably be here for days just you know trying to talk about all those comparisons within a sighted person versus a non-sighted person Got it, and so on. It's like, it's, it's like sometimes I even like I start stumbling upon my own thoughts because I want to get so much out of that. So the first pieces began really just applying that to a flat 2D surface and painting. And they were just complete failures, miserable failures, you know, trash them and so on. Then I began, I thought, well, why am I trying to reinvent Braille on a flat surface when it's a tactile language? And so I, be- I went to Lowe's, picked up uh, some nail punches and different things and brought it back and started hammering out on paper, teaching myself how to write Braille. And if you know anything about Braille, writing Braille, one, you first, you have to write it in reverse, right? When you're hammering it out, you have to write it in reverse from right to left. Then you can flip it over and then the person can then read it from left to right. Right. And, you know, you think about how difficult that is. It's no wonder many blind people can't read Braille because, one, we don't have an infrastructure for teaching, the facilities, and so on. And so in working with a couple of institutions, it's, it's, it's like, this is just crazy. I'm thinking if our society were like this, we'd all be still walking around in bearskin rugs or whatever, just kind of ugs and ugs, and, and hadn't advanced uh, very far at all. So it just really gave me a different sense and an empathy for not only blind people, but all people in general, because who's perfect? No one's perfect in this world. So that level of imperfection, and it, it gave me a different attitude towards even my own practice, trying to structurally order this thing into such an idea or notion of perfection when I realized it's never going to happen.
0: So, I mean, this is such a rich area to talk about it. I mean, clearly you and I could talk for hours and we, maybe this should be the first of a six part series of, <laughs> of episodes, but how has your Braille work or has your exploration in Braille, I guess I'll put it that way, built a bridge for you to the community of what's the proper term, non-sighted
1: peoples? They will say blind, yeah, okay. like blind and visually impaired. So after producing a couple of pieces, like the first one I did was for the Aloft Hotel here when they built it some years back. Well, one, so incredibly excited to do that with uh, John McKibben, who owns the hotel. And what I liked about John was he also saw the value in this. And so we had this lengthy discussion. And what we finally came to is that he offered, so I did 10 quotes on this one piece in the Aloft. So he decided to publicly put out, if anyone could actually decipher, transcribe those 10 quotes, he was going to donate $1,000 to a couple of different organizations. And so we chose the Asheville Council for Literacy, Mm -hmm. and then we also chose the Industries for the Blind. Mm -hmm. And so they had two representatives from those institutions there, and he gave them had the television people there and all that, donated $5,000 each, which I thought was incredibly munificent. The person from the Industries for the Blind, we got into a conversation and started talking about some kind of programming for their people down there. So the Industries for the Blind, their main headquarters is in Winston-Salem, but they have a satellite company here. And so they hire blind and visually impaired people to give them a, a living wage. And they'll come in, they'll show them how to do these kind of repetitive acts to, to basically, I think they were sewing some type of military packs at the time. I began volunteering one Saturday a month to go in to work with blind and visually impaired people to do some artwork. And so bringing clay in there, we started, we kind of molding forms, sculpting things, and just trying all these different projects. And then one day, someone asked if we could do origami, Mm. And I'm thinking, how am I going to teach a non-sighted person origami, right? It's like, because as visual people oftentimes you say, here, do you see what I mean? And we're pointing to something like this. It's like, okay, I can do this. <laughs> I mean, I love a challenge. And so I went through and studied this. And, and I started working with my son, who then was about six years of age. I said, all right, let's, let's kind of go through this step by step find the paper about three-fourths of the length, you know, fold it here. I mean, it's just like step by step. And lo and behold, Scott and Louise was like, at the end of this, they each had this beautiful swan paper, origami swan. I was almost in tears about this, and they were so excited, like, we want to do more. It's like, well, let's continue to do more. And so we did that for a year, and then unfortunately their program director retired, and the next person... I hope the IFB is listening. The next person didn't want to continue that on. And I was just willing to do that. (laughs) I I know. I know. It's like, what? Anyway, (laughs) WTH. Yeah, right, right, right. Exactly. Um, (laughs) But something else is that through the IFB, they had a program that I worked with a woman. She came over from Winston-Salem. I did a program where I put on blinders for a day. Mm. And they were going through all these types of activities from pouring water to counting money. And then we had to then, so that interior cafeteria with our canes, we had to walk through the facilities to the cafeteria, order, pay for food, carry the food, you know, with our trays to our table and then sit down all while still blindfolded. And so I'm going through this and this is truly one of those mind-blowing, earth-shattering benchmark moments in my life Mm. because it made me so appreciate vision and what I do have, but it also made me appreciate people who don't. And it's like, I think everyone should have to go through that. The empathy that I think we would have for mankind after that would be like tenfold.
0: You know, I'm reminded About three lifetimes ago, I used to work in design and commercial design and consumer products specifically. And this idea of human-centered design was sort of born back, I guess, you know, it's been around, but, you know, maybe in the 90s, it became kind of trendy. But I remember reading about some design projects that were involved where the design firms actually constructed suits because they were creating products and experiences for senior citizens. And Mm -hmm. they had created these suits that they would have to wear because it helped to emulate the experience of a senior citizen who maybe doesn't have great range of motion, maybe their hands can't grip or whatever the case might be and these young designers who were maybe in their 30s, their eyes were so open in terms of compassion and empathy in designing mm-hmm. products for those people who it's hard to understand what it is like not to be able to see or not be able to squeeze or or move quickly. So, wow, what a revolution, certainly for an artist as well. What a revolutionary moment in your experience as, a, as an artist.
1: It made me realize that it's all about light. Mm. We are so dependent upon light from the sun to the reflection and refraction of light and so on. It truly opened my eyes. And I remember at the end of that day, well, one, they turned all the lights down in the boardroom and we took our blinders off and slowly you know, allowed our eyes to reacclimate to the light. And I drove home that day with so many people honking at me because I was going so slowly. <laughs> because I was so conscious and I was so moved by this. It's just like, this was just incredible. And it's like for days, and it's still with me. And when I think about it now, it surfaces that what a, a true moment of thinking what it is to truly be intentional, conscientious, human being. Hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm reminded we all have our moments back in college. I I managed a rock band. Our drummer was blind. True story. Wow. And he was a killer drummer. I was like, are you kidding me? (laughs) 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 It was unbelievable. I have uh, good vision. I, you know, I can barely walk down the street.
1: <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> well, you, you talk so you know what I'm reminded of of this daily. It's just like sometimes I'm looking for my glasses, or I'm looking for something. I'm looking, looking, and I, it's like I'm going all around. It's like mm. I will make 180, 360 degrees, five tours around the house, and they were right there in front of me from the very beginning. Mm. It's just mm. like sometimes our brain gets in the way of our own sight. Mm. And so I'm constantly reminded is that sometimes I'm a, I'm a dummy and I don't pay attention and I don't look as well as I should.
0: Well, it's being present, isn't it? On a certain level. And that might get to meditation and and mindfulness and things because we are so distracted, right? In any given yes. moment, that you forget the pin is behind your ear. You know,
1: it's like, where's <laughs> that pin? Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> well, you talk about being mindful and being intentional. When I'm hammering out or you know tapping out Braille, there's no music. I can't mm. have any distractions mm. because once again, I have to punch it out in reverse. So I have to think about what is an F look like reading it, but then hmm. I have to flip it in reverse. And it reminds me of a story that the first time I met with some people at the National Federation of the Blind, and I said, yeah, I said, you have to write backwards, right? Like, no, no, no. So we don't use the word backwards. You know, we use the word reverse, even some of the language though, right? Interesting. Because backwards means that there's some kind of derogatory term. Right, right. But when I have to do a lot of Braille, it's like, I have to really be in the moment because otherwise I'm going to have misspelled words. Mm. You may not know this, but like an F or D are three dots, but they're three like this or three like this. So if I flip them, Mm. I could be AD or AF if Mm. I'm not paying attention to that. Mm. And Mm. so I really have to focus on that. And there have been a couple of times where I've had assistants in the studio with me, and we're all tapping out. We all get into a zone. And, and you hear like, da 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 It's almost like a, a drumming for a Philip Glass serial piece, right, right? Right, right, And Michelle, my wife, who we're separated from, but still my studio manager, says she kind of opened the door one time and listened. She said, it drove her crazy. <laughs> د- continue, it's like... But we were each in our zone Mm. and it just worked for us. So
0: I want to better understand the process actually of writing and tapping out Braille, because as you know, I'm completely ignorant about it. But as I'm thinking about it, I mean, hopefully there are tools or devices or a process methodology that makes it a little bit easier. Like, I mean, are you penciling out the dots before you're tapping? Do you have a matrix grid that helps you? Place the dots in a straight line. I mean, you know, like, like, how does it work?
1: Well, I started out using just a grid, like a you could buy gridded paper, mm-hmm. but that is not accurate Braille because the space. So first and foremost, each letter is called a cell, and so it is six dots. And by the way, this spells out Artsville, <laughs> and uh, so. A R S T V I L L E, right? Woo! And by the way, these are copper furniture nails. Do you see? Can you see them? I yes, them. yes. 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 Of course. You know, North Carolina is known for its furniture. I just kind of did that in the, very quick before we did this. So I, I try. I did. I do some. Can Can
0: the- I have to interrupt you? Please put a red dot on that. I am buying that. I don't care. YouTube. <laughs> and, and I just beat Louise. I just beat Louise to the punch. <laughs> you may have to make well, two. <laughs> I'll make one. You know what? No, I'll, you
1: you give me your address. I'll send it to you. That is amazing. And, uh, I love that. Wow. How and cool. Louise, I'll send you one as well. So <laughs> I started out with the grid. Like I said, I went and bought first. I bought these nail punches from Lowe's. Because I'm thinking, well, how do I punch this out? But there are devices now that has official Braille with these punches. And I, I wish I'd brought one with me. I brought some other things, some examples. You have a stylus, and it's like a handheld stylus. And then you have like a little metal device that you can you put your paper through. And then you just you punch through that in those six dots. And so it's very... Well, they have a protocol guidelines for that. Mm -hmm. Some of the things I do are oversized, and it's very challenging for a blind person because they need to be able to read it within that fingerprint. Right, right. I'm just trying to give them some extra things to think about, some abstract work. You know, we get to see things abstractly and so on, and I'm just trying to give them something extra. Sometimes I will write it out with like – first I write it out on, on a piece of paper with a marker Then I can flip the paper, adhere that and punch it out. But now I've also devised a couple of systems where I have these four foot wide mechanisms where I can slip paper through that or copper or aluminum or anything else that's soft and malleable and then hand punch it out to whatever literary source I'm stealing it from.
0: I mean, you could spend your whole career, the rest of your career in this area alone. And you're so prolific. I mean, your portfolio of work, your body of work is multimedia, dare mm-hmm. I say. I mean, you you paint, you draw, you sculpt, you do site-specific installations. Obviously, Braille is one exploration, one area that you've gone deep in. But I mean, truly, you could, I mean, what is the future of this particular medium for you? And is it something that you'll just always come back to? Or is this something that you're going to dedicate yourself to? Or are you are you done with it right now?
1: Yes, 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 and yes. (laughs) No, I'm nowhere near done. Yeah. One, because like some of the pieces I'm working on, like I say, I said, I steal work because I enjoy reading so much. I love transcribing works that move me. And so, like, one of the first major pieces I did was based on Thoreau's Walden. And so, what I did, because, well, first, Thoreau, as far as a junior in high school, it threw me for a whole kind of metaphysical, philosophical, transcendental loop. Reading this man's work about like, okay, I'm going to leave society and go live on my own. That began as like a path of independence for me. Mm -hmm. And so when I came back to that, I decided this is something I need to do. And so I went back, read it again. And so then I created the 18 pieces, one for each chapter. Mm. And I have a couple of proposals out and it's constantly expanding. So the, the first iteration were just the wall mounted pieces. And I think I sent you an image where the half of the work is kind of like bifurcated. It's like half. And so then the wall is painted behind that as well.
0: I love that series.
1: Love it. Well, then I've also created three chairs. So in one of his chapters, he talks about neighbors and friends But he only needed three chairs in his life. One for solitude, two for friendship, and then three for society. He said, if I have more than three people, they can stand or figure out a way to sit, you know, (laughs) from there. And so I created these three chairs that are now half painted white and the rest are natural. And now I'm thinking I have a design for a table that then has then the shape of the actual pond shape itself. So I'm constantly growing this own project. So it's like, it's like I never can stop at one particular moment. I want this to be an all-encompassing, engaging, interactive component because it's like Walden, you can't move Walden. But I can now take the philosophy or notion, the texture, feel of Walden. I can travel it around the world. Mm. And his words to me still resonate so deeply and i would think if people read it today it would still resonate with them as well because he was such a brilliant man
0: we've talked a lot about how your braille work has perhaps connected to and impacted the community of the blind well how has this work impacted or connected to people who can see the sighted
1: community hmm well maybe one example I brought all kinds of things were like dog and pony show.
0: <laughs> show and tell. That was my favorite day in school.
1: <laughs> so this is a gold book. And what it has on here is Believe Me. So I started when Donald Trump was elected president. The one area I disagreed on was his language. The way he languaged other people, the way he almost kind of demoralized them, used derogatory terms. Now, he wasn't the first person to ever do this in politics, but he made it an art form. And I kept thinking, as I'm listening to these debates, where he would give everyone a nickname, and they weren't, I mean, these are nicknames meant to basically belittle them. I'm thinking, where in the hell as a society have we gone to to allow this? And so whatever good he's done, it's like, all right, but it's just the language itself because language is our means of communication. And so what I began to do is do these big gold pieces that believe me, I started taking all of his words in derogatory terms and making them into those gold bricks. So I started buying these gold, I don't know if you can see the br- Each one has a word on it. Mm-hmm. And so different forms of gold, because language is a value. Mm. So he always spoke about his being so great at everything. Mm. It's like, okay, that's fine. Do that, but do it in a way that actually can bridge gaps, not create the gaps. And so I began to think about the politics and the power of art in politics and how we can begin to at least have a a civil conversation. And so I'm not going to go after him and say, all right, he's bad and all this. What I want to do is start a conversation to bridge the gaps between the us versus them. I'm not a Democrat or a Republican. I signed up as an independent day one. And so it's like, this is what I wanted to do. It's like I don't want to be part of a party that uh, has to adhere to certain rigid dogmatic guidelines. And I kept thinking of this Here I am a teacher, right? I have to go in the classroom. I want to teach my students how to communicate. Well, as a graphic designer or an artist, you have to learn to communicate. You have to listen to your client. Then I kept thinking to myself as a parent, would I teach my son that language to use against someone to somehow win that person over? Like, No, I want my son, I want him to be smart, communicative, but I also want him to be empathetic. I want him to succeed, but not at that cost. So what I want people to see is that, one, a gold like this, this is fake gold. This has nothing to do with reality. And some of it has that sheen. So much of it, you can see yourself and we are reflected in that. So that is a reflection. He's a reflection on us. And do we remain quiet about it or do we say something about it? And that I just had to say something about it. And so I've already had several iterations of the Believe Me piece. I'm going to have another one in North Louisiana in October. And I just think it's important that we all begin a conversation with everyone, whether you disagree with them or what. But we've got to make some changes in this world of ours, in our society, if we're going to be successful.
0: So listening to that, it's got me thinking about your public art and your site specific installations and how they drive conversations, how they drive change, how they offer commentary or critique on our body politic. As we were talking a minute ago, or as I was referencing, part of what I love about your career and your journey and your artistry is that It truly is multimedia, multidisciplinary. You paint, you draw, you sculpt, but yet you also create these powerful public art installations. Talk a little bit about your work in the public sphere and what inspires you around that and what you have envisioned for the
1: future. One area or one phase of my life that was truly enriching and educational and eye-opening was being on the Asheville Public Art Board. And so that's a position back then that you had to apply for and interviewed by city council and the mayor. And so then I was chosen. So I I spent seven years on the public art board. So I'm working with politicians. I'm working with the government. I'm working within bureaucracy and realizing that, is it perfect? No. But how do you work within that? And then how do you then connect the community to that, to that idea and it's really more about education because, one, our public arts education is so lacking within the schools themselves. And so through the public art, we were trying to extend some type of programming connecting to the community at large that we're fortunate in Asheville to have a really decent public art collection. And a lot of that was based on the urban trail as a group of citizens who came together on their own time they were funding this, they were connecting to this, and they started this entire urban trail public art piece. And so that's the mainstay of Asheville. And so it's a very educational piece because it tells the history and the narrative of Asheville itself. My participation in that, like I said, was eye-opening because sometimes you're really scratching your head. It's like, is this the best way that we can possibly do this? And oftentimes many people were so frustrated because it truly moved at a snail's pace. But it taught me patience. It taught me how to speak to people, to communicate on multiple levels. And in a way it's helped, once again, like working with the blind. It's like, it's working with people oftentimes I completely disagreed with. We're working, once again, conservative people, very extreme, you know, liberal people and all this, and everyone's wanting something completely different. How do you manage and wrangle that into something, some entity that is beneficial to most people? And so it's oftentimes I like putting myself in those challenging positions so that I become a better person. And then mm-hmm. hopefully then I can spread mm-hmm. that out and maybe be a mentor to someone, to some young person and that rubs off on them. And that begins to spread.
0: Ken, one of the things that I so appreciate about talking to you today is your ability to articulate and communicate your story and your thought process and your feelings. One of the things that I've you know observed about working with artists for 30 years off and on, I mean, it's interesting because... There are brilliant artists who have a very tough time communicating, (laughs) you know, they, you know, either they're introverted or shy or they just want to make the work. They want the gallery to talk about it. They don't want to talk about it. But you, my friend, have clearly gotten to a point where you are so articulate about what you're thinking and feeling and working on and created and so on and so forth. How do you talk so good?
1: (laughs) (laughs) You know, Scott, I still think I'm maybe average. It's like, one, I work at it. Like when Louise and I started talking, she started sending me the podcast. And, well, one, I went and listened to both of your podcasts. And I've learned to do homework. And then sometimes I have to go back and do homework, even on my own work, because I am doing so much. I forget shit all the time, but I work because I respect people and I can still remember people that I know who are great storytellers. I remember uh, the former president of AB Tech, K. Ray Bailey. That man, I mean, he could tell a story off the cuff of, I mean, so quickly. And it's like, how do you do that? Like, I want to be that person. Mark Twain, who can somehow take these just just very ordinary stories, and just give them such color and texture. So I work at it. I work at it, but I'm also, as a teacher, day in and day out, I often have to go in there, and sometimes I, here's here's my list of things to do, here's my project, my syllabi, but sometimes it doesn't work, and I have to ad lib. Or what if technology breaks down, right? You talked about some technological differences earlier. Sometimes technology breaks down, and you've got to figure out a way to all right, keep the show running and going. And I think thirdly, it's probably because I spend so much time alone and just kind of talking to talk into them you know, know, in my own, my own head. I just enjoy opportunities like this to find it's like, all right, I've got something to say. Let's get it out there and go for it.
0: It's like, oh, finally, I have a minute to, <laughs> to, to spew. <laughs> yeah,
1: Exactly. So I <laughs> have to be cautious. Like, all right, yeah. Ken, it's like, all right. Don't say too much, but I appreciate you saying that. And and like I said, it it takes work. It takes work Mm. for that oral communication. And that's something that, you know, working in architecture and in graphic design, sitting across from a client, the client comes to you with a problem they want solved visually. Mm. And oftentimes they're a mess. They're just bringing you a pile of box of things and saying, here, I need a new logo. I need this or that we have to then ask the right questions. Mm. We have to learn how to communicate with them and then also be really good listeners.
0: And listening is one of those, it is an art form or a skill. It's a muscle, right, that we've got to work out. And it's so powerful to be able to know how to listen. And yet it is something you can practice and get better at. And it's fascinating to me that we're sort of living in a time where People are not listening. They're not having a dialogue. They're talking at you, not with you. And, you know, and hopefully art can begin to bridge that gap. And, you know, the work that you do provides those opportunities for real dialogue.
1: Well, I appreciate you saying that. And by leaving teaching, I'm not leaving teaching. I'm just leaving the formal classroom. I want to continue on with a foot in education. I want to continue on because I know it's, to me, it's paramount to our society. And to our well being and to our culture. How do we continue on to be creative people? But yes, how do we do that within creative ways, bridging gaps, bridging races, genders, and so on? Be inclusive with as many people as possible because there are a heck of a lot of creative people out there who don't look like me, Mm. who have different skin color, who come from a different background, and so on. So that way, I consider myself privileged. In many ways, many people aren't so privileged. And that's what I want to connect with. I've worked with open doors and working with small black kids, teaching them how to draw. You know, these kids that can draw, it's like, dang, you can draw better than I can. You know, you're 10 years old, but they just never really had that opportunity. So I really want to make those connections, continue that communication, and hopefully articulate something that they can understand from some old white man like me. (laughs)
0: and an old white man like me too i turned 52 the other day i was like wait what happened (laughs) how did how did this happen
1: yeah well (laughs) well to me i see it's i think it's a privilege to grow old right because i've known too many people who are no longer with us so i'm just gonna keep hanging on and until i can't
0: yeah well that's the thing i mean without getting into detail. I mean, it's it's sadly, you know, growing up, had some tragedy early on, losing some loved ones and some close people. And boy, that I remember just thinking, boy, life is precious. You know, we have to make the most of it. And Ken Katara, you are making the most of it, my friend. And I'm just so grateful and honored that you took time out of your busy, busy practice to come and share with us on Artsville today. This has been such a gift and a joy. I hope you will come back and share more because you are a man on the move. You are. Things are <laughs> things you. are happening. Talk for a second, although, I mean, you, you said you're leaving education. You're leaving formal teaching, correct?
1: Correct. As of a week or so ago, I taught at Mars Hill University for 10 years. Mm-hmm. I had about five or so years at AB Tech and a couple at UNCA but I've realized my time is best spent doing what we're talking about right now. Mm -hmm. And also, so you turned 52, I turned 62 this year. And so it's like, I've been working two full-time jobs. Yeah. And I just don't have the energy to do that anymore. So I want to focus on this, but once again, having that educational component Mm. working with people, Mm. whether they can see or not, whether their skin color is the same as mine, I think there's a great opportunity and a great kind of void that needs to be filled with that. Being from Louisiana, being from the South, from Lake Charles to New Orleans, there are a lot of people down there who are just hungry for art. There are people hungry here for art. And that's one area that I truly want to continue on. And I'm going to.
0: You know, it's a fascinating thing to ponder. What kind of world, what kind of country, what kind of culture would we actually have if? artistic expression, creative expression had been taught as rigorously as math, science, reading, geography, history, what have you. Because of course, you know, we were all born with that innate desire to create and express ourselves creatively. And yet it gets suppressed, it gets pushed out. And, you know, and here we are with so many societal issues that actually need to have creative solutions. And it feels like the muscles that we need to solve those problems are a bit atrophied. And I, you know, and I really believe, you know, it's, are you a comedy guy by any chance?
1: (laughs) Yeah. I I like to laugh.
0: (laughs) Well, well, so I don't know if you're a a Norm uh, McDonald fan or not. I know. Yeah. So, so he sadly recently passed away, but Netflix released, they secretly recorded a, a special with him. That they've just released this week, I guess. And so I was watching it the other day and he had this bit about how people are saying that comics are the new philosophers. And he was saying that he doesn't like that joke because it makes him feel bad about real philosophers. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and I, you know, and I've been saying for a while that I really feel like artists are kind of our new spiritual leaders. And it doesn't Mm -hmm. make me feel sad for the the (laughs) the spiritual leaders at all, because I think artists, you know, we bring, hopefully we bring, right, that sense of seeing, that sense of integrity that the world really needs right now for novel, new novel solutions to these complex problems. And Ken, you are definitely part of the solution, my friend. Thank you for coming on the show today.
1: You are welcome. I truly enjoyed it. Well,
0: make us a promise and come back, okay? we
1: Will do. Ready for it.
0: Fantastic. We'll see you later. Okay. Thanks for listening to the Artsville podcast. Please make sure to like this episode, write a review, and share it with your friends on social. Also, remember to subscribe so you get all of our new episodes. Artsville is produced by Crew West Studios in Los Angeles in partnership with Sand Hill Artist Collective in Asheville, North Carolina. Our theme music was created by Dan Ubik and his team at Dan Danube Productions. Artsville is edited by We Edit Podcast and hosted by Captivate. Thanks again for listening to Artsville. We'll be back soon with another inspiring episode celebrating American contemporary arts and crafts from Asheville and beyond. Artsville, Artsville, the happening town where art abounds. Artsville. Artsville, from Asheville town where art abounds. Artsville, Artsville, feeling mountain high and aspiring North Carolina. Oh, that's where you'll find us, amazing artists and designers. Oh yeah. Artsville, from Asheville.